And uh, two men in the Bible, the book of Romans is built around, that really illustrate that. And what we have been doing is we have been looking at the life of one of those men, David. The other man is Abraham. And in time, we're going to cover both of them. We're going to look at both of them. But Abraham is a man that when you study his life, and this is why Romans is built around this great concept because it's so vitally important, uh, and he wanted to illustrate it by two men's lives who really give you the insight into it. Abraham is a man who gets God's righteousness based purely on faith. Abraham did absolutely nothing to get God's righteousness. God gave it to him by faith without works. And so we want to realize that when you and I get God's righteousness, there's, there's nothing that we can do to merit it. God gives it to us without works. And then David, David is the great example that shows of a man getting God's righteousness imputed to him when he doesn't deserve it. Those two examples are paramount to understanding the book of Romans. The last couple of weeks we have been examining David and I told you how that uh, when you understand their relationship with God, it really is the key to the book of Romans. And in time, we're going to study Abraham's life just like we have David's or are doing David. And uh, we told you how that the book of Romans is built around those lives. And uh, we have looked at David uh, in three aspects. Well, we're in the process of. I told you that David, if you want to study David's life, you study David as a shepherd. We've already done that. Then you study David as the king. We're going to do that today. And then you're going to study David as God's man. Uh, the lives of these men in the Bible many times are very lengthy. The life of David is a very lengthy study, as is Abraham. I think the lengthiest study in the Bible is probably Moses. But uh, you have to be able to break it down and be able to see it in a, in a kind of a composite way to put it all together. And years ago when I began to study David and I began to look at his life, it was obvious to me that David's life came into three concepts. First of all, you study him as the shepherd. Those will be the young years of his life. That's where so many of you are at today. So many of you are just getting into the Bible and getting your feet wet. So many of you are in those formative years where, uh, like David, you're really learning to develop the heart that God wants you to have. And we find that in the David as the shepherd. We're going to study today about David as king. And uh, when you study David as king, I think we're going to, you're going to find that uh, it's something that will help you in every aspect of your life today. You know, when you think of David, and I thought about this week, there's two verses that really sum up David's life in the Bible. The first one is, we've already talked about, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. That verse says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. Then the second verse that sums up his life is found in a little more obscure place, and that's in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. And here he says, Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now that's a pretty, those two statements are pretty amazing statements. And you know what? The most amazing thing about those statements, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to God, and, and uh, you'll understand my point in this in just a second. The most, the most, the most incredible thing about those two, two statements, and that's the last one, is it isn't true. The Bible says there in 1 Kings chapter 5, uh, 15, 5, it says, David did what was right all the days of his life except in one matter. 
You know that's, when you go through the account in David, that's not true? You'll find that David numbered the people and God came down and whacked him for that. You'll find many places where David loses faith in God. And uh, as I said earlier, a couple of weeks ago when we studied uh, how David got into the problems he got into, you find David losing faith in God, running into the wilderness, and uh, all kinds of situations in his life. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about imputed righteousness. God looked past everything that he did except in one matter. And obviously that one matter is because that there was no covering under the law for that matter. And God dealt with that in his own way and we'll talk about that next week. But here's a classic example of God imputing righteousness to someone that did not deserve it. And at the end of the day, God saying he did what was right all the days of his life except in one matter when obviously he did not. You know that if you're saved this morning and you and I are saved this morning, that's the way God looks at us. You understand that is one of the greatest concepts of imputed righteousness right there. We are, even after we're saved, we have our struggles. We have our problems. We go through our trials and we go through our failures. And yet in spite of all of that, in God's sight this morning, you and I are sinless in Christ Jesus. Now, somebody said, wow, whoopee, that means I can go out and do what I want to do. No, we also learn from the life of David that even though God imputes his righteousness to us, it doesn't mean that God does not hold us accountable for what we do when we do what's wrong. And obviously, David's life is a great example of that. And we see that. You know what you got? You got two things here. Acts chapter, I want you to, I'm going to read these two again, and I want, you to, I want you to see these two key words. Acts chapter 13, verse 22, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own, here's the word, heart. See that thing? Now watch this. Act 1 Kings 15, 5. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. There's your second word, eyes. The eyes of the Lord and David's heart. You know what that tells me? God's always looking at your heart. It wasn't what David did, right or wrong, that God saw. It was what God saw in David's heart. And that always comes down to the bottom line. And of course, man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Bible says God looketh on the heart. And in those two verses, you have the, you have the picture of God's great doctrine of God's imputed righteousness. God looking beyond what you and I do. And oh yes, Many times we'll pay the price for it. Many times the condemnation in this world of the mistakes that we made come back and bite us. But as far as God's concerned, He imputed His righteousness to us and we stand uh, before God uh, in that righteousness. Now, as I said, last week we studied David as a shepherd. And we saw a great example, or the last time was the last week. We saw that in developing those formative years, and this is what my job is, my job is always looking for men and women who want to serve God. My job basically is to let God bring people in here and give you the time and the space to find out where you're at, what you want to do, and then let the Word of God weed you out as far as who will do what and who will do what. See, I can't see your heart. I mean, I don't know what you think down inside. I don't know where your heart's at. But... But that's okay. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. Your actions in time display what's going on in your heart. 
And you can't say, well, I love God when you're out in the world. You can't say, well, I love God, but I don't read his Bible. Those are games that we play in our minds, you see. It doesn't work that way. But so my job is, to, is always on the constant. I told somebody last week, I'm like the Marine Corps. I'm always looking for a few good men. I'm always looking for somebody out there that has the attitude of heart and the ability by which uh, that, that God can do something with. Because the job of this church is to keep raising up men and women who help take over the mindset of overseeing the flock. And we talked about uh, what a shepherd does. He oversees the flock. We talked about how important your foundational years are in your life. How those young years where you get begin to build the shepherd's heart. It starts on the inside and it goes to the outside. David's early years as a shepherd, where he was alone with God, where he had that, where God didn't have a lot of competition. You know, the, and this is a true statement. When you first get saved, and I don't know if you can look back in your own life and, and remember that. When I first got saved, that first probably couple of months was, 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 was the greatest time of my life. In those first two months after I got saved, now I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. And I know I see it in some of you. The first, first, first couple of months after I got saved, there was no question in my heart who I was going to serve. Man, I was, I was so out of, the, out of the darkness into the light. I was so glad to be saved and have a new life in Christ Jesus. For those first couple of months, you couldn't have got me anywhere to do anything against God. I was transfixed on what God had done in my life. But all oh, the third month. In other words, the longer you go from that point of the change in your life, the easier it is to forget what God has done and the easier it is to take for granted what God did in your life. And that's why I'm saying those early years as a shepherd, you have to find a way. You have to find a way to keep that vision, keep that freshness, keep that excitement that lasts 30 years since the day you got saved. Because if you don't, it'll be just like most of God's people. You're excited today, but in time, competition comes in. You see, when he was out there alone watching the flocks, he didn't have a TV, he didn't have an iPod, he didn't, have, he didn't have all the things that we have, not that any of those things are bad. All he had was God and a bunch of sheep. And all he had out there was the starry nights, was to look up at God's creation. And I promise you, in those early years as a shepherd, that's where he built the foundation years of his life that got him through the rest of his life. There was no competition. First couple of months, I was saved. There was no competition. Nothing. Nobody could take what I had from God. But as time goes on, when you lose that, that excitement, when you lose that freshness, competition comes in. And it comes in in many forms. And it doesn't matter what form that it comes in. It matters that now it starts taking precious time from what you have with God that, that suddenly you start to say to yourself, well, you start to break down. Where once you said, oh, I'm staying away from that, now you say to yourself, well, a little bit's okay. And very slowly, the devil begins to erode that excitement in your life, and those foundational years begin to crack, 
and the crevices begin to get filled with things of this world and suddenly uh, you find that, that this whole world now has taken and robbed you of that precious joy. Let me ask you a question. And, and answer this yourself. What is it in this world? Is there, name me one thing that really now, I know, I know, I know how it looks, but in this world, name me one thing I mean, most of you at some point in your life, you've, you've experienced that exhilaration with God. That, that, but what in this world compares with that, that you would allow that to be taken out of your life? I, I, I don't understand. And yet I can say to you young Christians this morning that that's exactly what you have to guard against. And you look at David as shepherd, you see a man who, who alone with God in those precious times, those formative years, right where you are at now spiritually, he found a way to keep, to keep that excitement about the Word of God. I want to tell you some things about David today that, that, that uh, maybe you didn't see. I want to show you a man that through his relationship with God, uh, started out as a shepherd of his father's flocks and wound up being the great shepherd of Israel over God's flocks. And you know that's what God has for you today? God wants you to grow to the place that you can be an overseer in the work of God. That you too can be trusted with somebody else's soul and somebody else's life in what you teach them with the Word of God. Now today we're going to look at probably, to me anyhow, is probably the most important study of David's life. And next week, I'll probably say the next one is also the most important study in David's life. I just can't make up my mind. It depends on which one I'm preaching on at that particular time, I guess. Historically, when we see David as king, here's what we have, just to put it in a context for you. We know that Saul was the first king that Israel ever had. But we also know that Saul was not God's choice. Saul was the people's choice. And what happened was, and what took place was, that the people wanted Saul over the king that God wanted them to have. And now we've come to the point where Saul has turned out to be what everybody, uh, what God told him he would be. He's the wrong guy. He's not God's man. And now God, historically, what you've got here, is going to replace Saul with David. And that's the historical side of it. When you look at David as king from a doctrinal standpoint, you'll find that, that David, uh, in almost in every account in his life as king, is a picture of Christ coming back at the second coming of Christ and defeating the Antichrist and all of his enemies. And that's basically what David does. He, in his life, he reigns for 40 years and, and he, he accomplishes that great task. But inspirationally, ah, here's where we're at today. And this is what you want to get down, and this is what we want to focus on today. Inspirationally, David as king is a picture of what your life and my life should be of the victorious Christian life. I have never seen a time in my life where God's people who ought to have the victory have completely broken down and lost the victory. And the reason is, is because they don't understand many of the things that I'm going to talk to you about today. And you need to understand that as a Christian, you need to always live above the circumstances. How do you do that? How do you get through some of the tough times that life, uh, things that life throws at you? 
How do you get above the, the things of life that keep wanting to pull you down? Well, first of all, if you're going to put it into the context, take those formidable years and let me give you a shepherd's heart. Let me teach you those basic things like David got. Second thing is David is king. David's life as king, inspirationally, is a picture of a man who was never defeated. He stands over every foe. He stands head and shoulders about every attack. During his years in reign, other than when he got messed up, and we'll talk about that next week, but when he was at his prime, when he was at his peak, when him and God as king was right where it needed to be, no nation, no enemy of God, no anybody, anywhere, any place could stand up to him. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of when you get to that point in your life, after you build the formidable years, that you get at the top of your game spiritually. Where Christ is king of your life. Where you understand the circumstances in perspective of the Bible. When you look at the things that you get thrown at you and the things you have to deal with and you do not see them as, as somebody in defeat. You see them as somebody in victory. You understand that as long as Christ is king of your life, as long as you and him are reigning on the throne of your life together, no enemy will ever be able to defeat you. That's what you get from David as king. It's an incredible story. David is the warrior king. He reigns 40 years. As I said, he, he fights and defeats the last of God's enemies. David represents the victory that I have in the midst of the conflict and the battle that you and I have to face every day. Now, when we come to Solomon, Solomon's the king of peace. He reigns for 40 years. But ah, Solomon represents doctrinally the millennial reign of Christ. Inspirationally, Solomon represents the millennial inheritance I will get after the battles that I have to fight down here on this planet. A study of David as king is a picture very basically and very simply of what your life and my life should be, victorious in the face of constant struggle. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, and he knew what he was talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes when he said there is no discharge from this war. And I want to tell you, I understand why some of you struggle, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to your struggles. And I realize that everybody, including myself, we are faced with things sometimes that, that want to defeat us. Notice I said, want to defeat us. There should be nothing that ever should defeat you. Nothing. Not if you're at the top of your spiritual game. Not if you've got your foundation built with a shepherd's heart and now you're on the throne of your life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every battle, every enemy, Everything, and there's, 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 there's scores of them, maybe not hundreds, but there's scores of events in the Bible where David is up against this or up against that. In every case, it shows me how I am to conduct myself in the midst of this battle to always have the victory. We go down to the mission. Let me ask you a question for those of you to go down. I don't know if you picked it up yet. What is their favorite song that we sing, not Bubba's favorite, no, don't know Bubba sing, but what is their favorite song that we sing out of that hymnal? Victory in, Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Did you ever notice that? 
Did you ever notice out of all the things? You see, you've got to learn to read between the lines with people. Did you ever wonder why when you go down there that their favorite song is Victory in Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because they so desperately want that victory. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I can hear those men week after week and somebody either Ray gets up or Danny gets up and they sing, let's turn victory to Jesus. And you know what? They don't sing most songs. They'll sing that one. Why? Because everybody in that room wants that victory. And it has eluded them all of their life and unfortunately, probably, in many cases, will elude them forever. Study of David as king is a picture of whatever our life should be. Victory in the face of constant struggle because you and Christ are reigning on the throne of your life together and you are at the top of your spiritual game and no one will ever knock you out. You may get knocked down, but you never get knocked out. Everybody gets knocked down. Everybody. There's never a person that walked this planet outside the Lord Jesus Christ that didn't get knocked down. The key is, don't get knocked out. That's what happens. Seen it all my ministry. You know, David reigns for 40 years, and yet Psalms chapter 90, verse 10 says that man's life is going to be three score and ten. That's 70 years. You know, when you look at that thing from a practical application, that's just about what our life is. I mean, you get saved, you know, most of us get saved in late teens or 20s, and then, you know, you fool around for a little while, and probably the bottom line is when you've got your life all sorted out, you only got 40 years left to give God anyhow. But when I come through David's life and his study of him as king, every battle, every foe, every adversary, everybody, everything he faces will show you and I how you and I are to have the constant victory in our lives that we are not to be defeated people. I have a, I've come to this conclusion. I've watched David's life as almost every major character in the Bible. I've detailed it out ways to my own satisfaction. And I've come to this conclusion about David. I come to the place that I realized that David knew more Bible out of fellowship than we do in fellowship today. I've certainly come to that conclusion. I remember a place over there in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now keep in mind, he's already killed Uriah, or getting ready to, and he's already committed adultery with Bathsheba. And they come into him in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 18 and 21, and they're saying to him, well, how'd the battle go? And he's saying, well, the battle went this way and this way, but so-and-so got killed because he got too close to the wall, and somebody threw something down from the top of the wall and killed him. You know what David said? Immediately, immediately, David calls him into contrast and says, you know what? Didn't you read in Judges chapter 9 where that happened with Abimelech when he got too close to the wall? Why do you guys let your people get so close to the wall when you know that's in the Bible? He was formulating his battle attack from the Bible, even when he was out of fellowship with God. David as king shows me how to wage my spiritual warfare and always, always, always be victorious. Now, I got a couple of examples here I want to give you, and I there's so many. There is so many. 
And uh, I, I wish we had time to do them all, but we don't. And we'll, if we did, we'd, we'd be here for three years and never get back to Romans. And I just got to give you an a, a capsule of these men. I can't get into their lives. That's something that, that you'll have to do or I can help you do or whatever. But, uh, you know, our first example is found in, in 1 Samuel 17. And this is really the first victory in David's life. And this is why I picked this one. Because this is where he goes up against the story of David and Goliath. And I call this story the courage of a shepherd that leads to being God's warrior king. And I look at things like this, and not only do I put them in my own life, but i got to be honest with you, I put them in your life. I try to evaluate where you're at, and many of you have committed to me that you want part of this ministry. Many of you are along for the ride. You know where you're at, I know where you're at, and we all know where we're at. I'm good with that. That should be a song. But anyway, it could be a good country western song. But the bottom line is this. Many of you have said to me, Bob, I'm taking this thing seriously. I want to have... I, want, I don't want to waste the rest of my life. And so when, when, when I get that kind of commitment, I view you totally different. I view you in the light of, of how I can best help you to do that. And I, I, every time, I don't know how many times I've seen uh, talk to somebody and they've told me that, and my mind goes back to this great story. The courage that a shepherd boy has that leads him to being God's man in the face of all adversity. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, pick it up in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shuketh, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shuketh and Ezra in Ephrathamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath uh, of the Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now that makes him, depending on how you figure this, that makes him anywhere from 13 to 18 feet tall. That's a pretty good sized guy. Now, obviously, he wasn't a beanpole, so add to that, he probably weighed about 908, maybe 1,000 pounds. Big guy. I mean, he would revolutionize the WWW. I'm just telling you right now. You thought Andre the Giant was big. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. That's pretty heavy. That's about 400 pounds. And he had greaves of brass upon his leg and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, a weaver's beam is like a, is, is, is a, is a square. About A weaver's beam is about an 8, 8 by 8 or 9 by 9. It's incredible. It weighed, probably weighs a couple hundred pounds itself. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. Well, I guess so. Carrying all that, you need somebody. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out and set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. Now, Father, we ask you to and pray, your Lord, that you'll help us today. But, Lord, we just ask you, Father, to take what we have here, help us to see this, and apply these things to a heart. Lord, there's, there's some good men and women here who really want to serve you. And, Lord, it's up to me to get them ready. You've charged me with that task to help them to 
work through their issues and to help them get their lives on track and to be to them exactly what they need to be. And I ask you today, Father, that you'll help us in all that we do. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. This is no new story. Your kids know the story of David and Goliath. But I want to talk to you about this story in a different light. I don't want to deal with a little shepherd boy going out and whacking a big guy as it is historically. I want to show you how this fits in to David as king. This is his first battle. And we're going to study the life of David as king as what your life should be and my life should be totally victorious. That's what his life as king represents. And I think there's some things that we can learn here. First thing I want you to see is verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched in the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. The first thing I want you to do is see is this. <coughs> Israel is on guard. They're on guard. They know the enemy's out there, so they, they pitch their tents, they put out their perimeters, and they are on guard. But the second thing I want you to see is that Israel doesn't attack them. Israel does not attack the Philistines. The Philistines attack Israel. That's the second thing I want you to see. Then I want you to see this. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Now that's a great, this whole thing is a masterpiece of how we fight this battle. You know the first thing you see? Israel's on one mountain, Philistines on another, and there's a valley in between. You know what that tells me? As a child of God, if you're going to have the victory in your life, you've got to separate yourself from the Philistines. God's people was on one mountain, Philistines was on the other mountain, and there was a valley in between. No separation between you and the world, there'll be no victory of Jesus Christ in your life. You've got to stay on their mountain, they stay on their mountain. And the valley is between. And if you don't get that, if, if you're such a, a mimbly-minded Christian that you think that you can serve God and the world at the same time, that you're already defeated. The first thing I see... In this great story about David's first victory is, and there's a number of things here. The first thing I see is Israel's on this mountain and, God's, uh, and, and, the, and the devil's people are on this mountain and the two were separated. God's people have put their battle in array. What does that mean? They put out their perimeters. They got their lookout set. They're watching what's going on, but they're content to stay where they're at. Separated from the Philistines. The second next thing I want you to see, after you get that great concept that there's no separation, there's no victory. There has to be a natural separation with God's people from the world's people. I was talking to somebody this week, an unsaved guy. And we were going back and forth and he was trying to do say this and I, I was just letting him talk and I, I didn't want to argue with the guy. And I, I came down at the end because I didn't want to shut the door in his face and not have a chance to talk with him. And I just simply said, you know what our problem is? <clears throat> we live in two different worlds. That's the problem. I believe the Bible is the absolute Word of God. A number of years ago, I got asked to, to do a debate with a psychologist in a college class. And there was about, there was about <clears throat> oh, I don't know, 200 kids in. I still got a video of it. <clears throat> And, and, the, and they introduced me, and they introduced her, it was a woman, a doctor so-and-so, and he introduced me as a pastor, you know, and, and uh, the kids were all down there, all college kids. And, we, and the debate was over, where, whether the Bible or psychology or secular psychology, you know, is the right way to go. 
And she got to go first. And she went up and introduced herself. <clears throat> and, and, and I made up my mind that I was going to be smarter than she was. And I, was going, I wasn't going to attack her, but I was going to put it in a, in a context that, that really drew the line. And everybody in there had to make a choice right out of the box. I didn't want them waiting to the end and saying, well, who did you like better? Because that wouldn't have been fair to her. <clears throat> I, I didn't, I didn't want to wait that long. I wanted to run out and snatch control of this from minute one. And so she got up and she talked about who she was and what she did. And, and then it was my turn. And I get up and I, and I simply said this. I said, I appreciate being able to be here today. And I appreciate so-and-so. I said, let me just say so we all make it clear that we are, have two different worlds here. This is what this is about. And you're going to hear some things that are controversial between the two of us. And I said, I'd rather explain that. I said, we come from two different worlds. I said, my position is that the Bible and the Bible alone has the answer to every man's problem. When I said that, I got two amens out of the crowd. So I know I'm on my way. And I said, Mrs. So-and-so over here, Dr. So-and-so, she believes that the Bible is of none effect in your life. She believes that man in his psychology and man in his thinking, in his rational mindset, has the ability to solve all of your problems. I said, so wherever this goes, you need to remember that I'm representing God's camp and the Bible as the absolute final authority. I believe there's no other truth outside this Bible. See, I got to present my whole case and put her at a disadvantage because I got two amens. She didn't get nothing but an oh no. See? And then I said, so thank you for that time. She gets up and she says, oh, oh, immediately I had her. See, I had her. She comes up and she says, oh, well, I, I, I want you to know, I go to church too, see. From that point on, it was a run kick and, 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 and I had her. Wherever she went, I had laid down that she's in one world and I'm in another. And she had nowhere to go. Because everything that she would try to say, now I had the foundation of bringing it back. Do you believe that's in the Bible? And when she said no, she just made herself look foolish. There was nothing she could take me and say to me because I already declared myself as standing on that book. You're in two different worlds with an unsaved person if you're, if you're, if you're saved. I, I see, I, I don't understand it. I see some of God's people, you know, they'll get hooked up with some gal or some guy. And the last thing in their mind is that person saved. It's the fact that, whoa, look at her, boy. Look at him. He's a dreamboat. It never even enters your mind. Are they saved? That never even comes in. Down the long, long way. Is this going to work? Is this compatible? No. You're in two different worlds. But you see, that's the difference between looking at it from God's standpoint and looking at it from your own standpoint. That's what happens. That's the problem. We live in two different worlds from this unsaved, ungodly situation that we find ourselves in. And if there is not a natural separation between God's people and the devil's crowd, the world, and all that it stands for, you're defeated before you ever get going. Then I want you to see the second thing in here. Look at verse 8. 
Israel didn't go looking for a fight. Israel did not go looking for a fight. The fight came to them. Now, this is a great lesson that some of you young Christians need to learn. And I'm all for, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I think, don't get me wrong now, I think that, you know, that as a young Christian growing up, you know, you need to spar with many people as you can, get your nose bloodied and, you know, and all those things. I think that's good. But the older you get, the older you get, it's just like, you know, the older you get, the, you, you learn how to choose your, the fights you get into. You learn how to pick your battles. And as me, as a Christian, I, 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 my, one of my favorite verses is, I, I want to live godly in Christ Jesus and be at peace with all men. I'll never go out looking for a fight. I never do. There's people who will say things against me, you know, and do this or that, or say, and I never go after them. I don't ever go looking for a fight. You know why? Because you only have so much energy to expend in a fight. And why waste your inter, inter, interballistic continental missiles on mosquitoes? Why expend all that energy in stuff that doesn't make any difference? There's enough real battles that will come your way that you will have to, you will have to fight. Then to waste your time fighting battles that at the end of the day mean nothing. And I want you to notice that they were content on staying on that side of the mountain. They were content. It wasn't until Goliath in his big mouth came out and said, Hey! You want to fight? But I want to say this. There will be a time in your life, Christian, when the Goliaths of this world will come and you'll have to fight. When that takes place, you better know how to fight. You better be exact in your tactics. There's some time that you just have to fight. I think the real concept of getting discretion and discernment in the Bible as a young man, as the book of Proverbs says, is that one concept, knowing when to fight and knowing when not to. Look at verse 25 and 26. There's the next thing. You've got to have the right motive in the fight. Everybody says, who's going to go out and fight Goliath? Boy, the guy who does, the king is going to enrich him and give him all kinds of money. You see, you can be in the fight and have the wrong motive. David didn't care about the money. Because David had a shepherd's heart, because David's got everything lined out in his life the way he needs to, David is concerned about God's honor, not what he's personally going to get out of it. Oh, this thing's a masterpiece. Then I'll show you something else. Not only do you got to have a valley, a separation between you and the world. Not only do you got to learn how to choose your battles. Not only do you got to have the right motive. Look at verse 38. Here's where they try to arm him with Saul's armor. I'll tell you something else. You can't fight this battle in somebody else's armor. How, what does that mean? What are you saying? That means, you know what? You have to grow up spiritually to be God's man or God's woman in your own spiritual worth. You can't just go out and tell somebody what you got on Thursday night about the Bible that you want to say, look at me, look at what I know. You'll get your tail waxed every time. The thing that makes Christianity laughable to me is God's people who get one little truth and try to go out and tell everybody else the truth and they couldn't explain it themselves and life depended on it. What a sure way to get, 
get, I always look at it, the battles, I always look at the battles that we get into. Uh, you know that movie on the history, uh, the military channel? I love it. It's called Dog Fights. You ever see that? They go back and recreate all the great, they get this guy who's still alive and this guy who is still alive and they recreate the great dog fights of either Korea or World War II or sometimes even World War I, though everybody's dead from there. And they'll show you all the different aspects. And to me, I've always thought as the battle of Christianity is like that. Because in most cases, both planes are even. You take a MiG-16 or a, a Super Saber, they're both the main, the, the planes are both the same. Maybe one will dive a little faster, climb a little higher, turn a little tighter, but on an even day, they're the same. You know what makes the difference in the fight? The man flying it. You know what makes the difference in the battle between God and God's enemy? The man fighting it! Knowing the tactics. Knowing when to fight. Know when to cut and run. Know when to roll and dive. Know when to pull out. Know when to think he's got you and you do a high-speed scissors on him and then shoot his tail off. But you've got to find your own armor. David says in verse 39, I can't wear these. Saul was probably seven foot tall. He's the guy that should have fought Goliath. David's about 16, maybe 15. Probably weighs 112 pounds soaking wet. Can you imagine a little five foot four guy that small putting on a guy's armor? He looked like a, he looked like a little piece of corn in a tin can. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture you need to have your own armor. You need to have your own armor. Did you ever look at Goliath's weapons of war? Verse 5 through 7 says he has a helmet. He has a coat of mail. He has brass greaves on his legs. He has brass on his shoulder. He has a spear. He has a shield. And he has a sword. Did you ever look what David had? Verse 40 says, And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a script, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Did you ever analyze what he's got? When he went to fight this battle, he took a shepherd's staff with him, because you never lose your shepherd's heart and go wherever you go. He went down to the brook and got five smooth stones. Those stones represent the smiting stone of Daniel chapter 2. He had a sling. Now, you know what? He could have had anything. At this stage of the game, what he had in his hand didn't matter. He could have, he could have, he could have picked up a rock and just thrown it and put him in the na-na land. But he had a sling. He had a sling. Now, I know that that tells me that, you know, I don't... You guys, you know, when you grow, you new kids growing up, and some of, you know, every kid when I was growing up had a slingshot. And what you did is went out and find you a good tree, oak tree, and find you a branch that naturally goes into a Y. And you want it real thick because you want something strong, but you want to be able to whittle it down so you still keep the core strength. And then you get you some of them. What we used to do is get inner tubes. You know, you don't even know what an inner tube is anymore. They don't even have them in cars. Boy. And you would go get a pair of scissors and you'd cut a, a piece of inner tube out about that big. And then you'd, 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 get, and you'd wrap it around on one end and cut you another piece and wrap it around and tie it real tight with wire or string so it didn't come off. But let me tell you something. The worst thing you ever want to happen is when you think you're going to whack a guy and you pull that back and that thing doesn't hold and you get two whacks when it comes back and hits you in both eyes. You, say, you wire it down tight. 
on both prongs. You get that thing going, and then you get yourself a piece of leather. And this will get you in trouble, especially as I did when you cut your father's belt in two because that's the only piece of leather that you could have. And you fix that on there. And then you get yourself, we used to use marbles. We called them steelies. Not because we stole them, but because they were steel, steelies, you know. You had to be there. And anyway, and, and you take that thing and pull that back and that sucker go out of there about 600 feet a second. You know in the Bible, the sling was a, was a formidable, formidable weapon. You know back there in, uh, in Judges 9, it says there were 700 men who could take a sling and they could hit a target at a hair's breadth. You realize, I mean, they were so good at it that they could hit anything running anywhere. You know when you got a battle and you got 700 guys behind you and, you know, everybody, the army's coming at you and they're marching. And I don't care how big they are. I don't care if Goliath was 8 feet. I don't care if it was 20 feet. The bigger you are, the bigger targets you are. And he come, they come lumbering down there, and those guys standing down there, and behind them is 700 men with those slings. And boy, I'll tell you what, every trunk troops fall down, you know, when they get about 100 yards away, everybody just collapses on the ground, and 700 slingers are ready to go and let those slings go out about knee high, at about 600 feet a second. Why, you get one of those things in the kneecap, you're done for the day. Wipe out the whole front line. And how hard is it to put another rock in? You can keep, you could probably, you could probably fire ten a minute. Wipe out the whole line. All you gotta go over there and say, hi. Did, boy, that hurt, didn't it? <laughs> what about this? But you know what that sling represents? It represents that in this battle, as God uses you as God's man and God's woman, He'll use whatever you got in your hand. One time Moses went in before Pharaoh, and he was scared to death. His first confrontation. You ought to read through the Bible, the great men of God, and see how they reacted in their first confrontation with somebody bigger than them. Moses and God are out there, and, and, and Moses is saying, well, what am I going to do? Pharaoh ain't going to listen to me. I mean, who am I? I mean, and he says, he says he's going to, I mean, he's, he's Pharaoh. I'm Moses. I mean, best I'm going to ever do is become Charlton Heston. I, went, I, went, I mean, how am I going to go up against Moses? And God said, now calm down, Moses. Just calm down. Don't have a heart attack. He says, Moses, what do you have in your hand? He says, well, I got a shepherd's stick. He says, then that's what I'll use. He walks in before Pharaoh. You want a good case study on faith in God in the battle? He walks in before Pharaoh, puts us down there, and, and he says, hey, let my people go. <laughs> <laughs> I told him to the Lord. He said, Pharaoh said, I ain't going to let him go. He said, now what do we do? He said, what do you got in your hand? Well, I got this staff. Throw it down. Threw it down on the ground. That big old staff turned into a big old 12-foot cobra. <laughs> Can you see Moses then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, look at old Pharaoh. You see those guards dance back? <laughs> when that snake come up, you know what Pharaoh did? He went. Called in his magicians, they threw down their sticks, their sticks turned into snakes. Now what do you do? You see, when it looks like you've been countered, never panic. You know what happened at the end of that story? God's snake ate their snakes. Then the real test was when Moses is standing there saying, Oh Lord, we showed him. And uh God says, yeah, it's time to get out of here now. Let's, let's boogie. And he says, okay, let's go. He says, pick up the stick. 
He says, you need a stick as a snake. He says, pick it up. And you see Moses, okay, God, you get his head this way. I'll catch him by the tail. He says, walk down, pick that stick up, and put it back there and turn into a stick again. But you know what God did? When God wanted to do something mightily for the nation of Israel and wanted to do something mighty with Moses, he just used what Moses already had in his hand. When he sent out David to fight Goliath, he said, David, I'll take, you got a sling, that's what we'll use. Bring your shepherds, bring your, get your stones, bring your, bring your sling, oh, and then put him in a, put him in a, put him in a, put him in a script. Our word for scripture. Everything David had to fight Goliath was bound up in a scripture. Oh, what a picture of the great victory that God gave David. Goliath mocks him in verse 45. David says, Then said David to the Philistines, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts of God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defiled. David didn't care about how big he was. David didn't care about what all he had. David had learned as a young shepherd when he fought the lion and the bear that all he needed on his side was God. And when God set him out, he was perfectly content against an 18-foot guy who weighed 60,000 pounds, who, who had all kinds of armor that was impenetrable, that all David had was a, was a shepherd's staff and a stone, five stones and a sling, but he had put them in a script. I wonder what that scripture was. You know it had to be out of the first five books of Moses. Or maybe Psalms. I bet it was, I bet, I bet, I bet it was one of the Psalms that David had written. That when he wrote that, he said, you know what? I'm going to talk that away because someday I'm going to have to get into something way over my head. And that script, that scripture, that Psalm will be what I need. Oh, yeah. You know what's the problem with with you and me? Oh, we got the stones. Oh, we got the sling. Oh, we got all that stuff. What we don't have, it was not wrapped in the Scripture by which we claim that promise. That was his first battle. And we see it a victory. And your life and my life ought to be won as victory. What an example David is to us as king and the battles that we have to face. Now, where Goliath is a picture of the world, this next one is a picture of the battle that you have sometimes with God's people. Oh, I know, I know, <clears throat> I know. In a perfect world, we all got to get along. So much for the perfect world. I mean, you think if anybody would be able to get along against the world, it would be God's people. But you know that's not true. And you're going to find, as you move up the ladder in ministry, and you grow spiritually, you're going to find that it's not the Goliaths of life that you really got to worry about. It's some of God's people in life you got to worry about. Well, let's look at this one. As I said, where Goliath is a picture of the world, this next one's a picture of the battle you sometimes have to face with God's people. David said in Psalm 119, verse 97, there's no true words ever spoken. He says that you and I ought to be wiser than your enemies, for they are ever with me. Now, did you ever notice the chronicle of David as king? 
We talked about early on in our first lesson about David, or maybe it was the second lesson, I'm not sure. <clears throat> we talked about how that, that God went through and the process by which he eliminated the found David. And that takes place, that takes place, if you're paying attention, that place takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And that's where David is anointed king. But if you study the account and you're up on your Bible, you know that David doesn't take the throne to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Now, whether you know it or not, that that's probably about, oh, when you look at it and figure it all up, that's probably eight to ten years. Eight to ten years between when he was anointed king and when he became king. And you know what he's got going for him or not going for him in those eight, ten years? Saul's still king. Now, Saul didn't do what's right, and God says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. But he didn't take it right away. You know why? Because David had some things he had to learn before he could become that king. Yeah, David had fought some great battles out there as a shepherd. Yeah, he just fought Goliath. But you know what? He still wasn't ready to be king yet. And so God left a, a wicked king in place while he trained up the young king who was going to take his place. But oh my goodness, my friend, you want a great study? Study what happened when King Saul recognized and understood that King David was going to take his place and he didn't want him to. God used the very wicked king that was against everything that God did to make the man David the king that God wanted him to be. See, God doesn't always take the bad things out of your life. He leaves those in there. Let me read you something here. Oh, and if you're a young man or young lady in this ministry down a place who really want to do something for God sometime, pay attention to this. This is worth whatever, whatever you have to do to understand it. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 6 through 8. You might know it's going to be a tough place. It's chapter 18, 666. Now keep in mind, Saul has been rejected of God. David now is going to replace him. And there's 8 to 10 years, Saul knows it, and he tries to get rid of David. Now watch this telling passage. 1 Samuel 18, 6. And it came to pass as they came, <coughs> when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, that's when he killed Goliath, that the women came out, all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tabret, with joy, and with the instruments of music. Now here's the first problem you got. Saul's the king. The king's the one that should have went out and fought him, but he was too much of a coward. So David goes out and fights him, the little nobody guy. But when they come back in the city, I guarantee you, Saul's riding in the head chariot like he had this great victory. His knees were knocking behind the, the portable potty over here when Goliath first started yelling. But all the women come out with their songs and their dances and their timbrels and all of that stuff. And what are they singing? What are they singing? And the women answered one another as they played and said, da dun da dun 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 Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Woo! Don't you know that, Father Saul? Don't you know as he's riding through there saying, Hello, I'm back. I'm King Saul. Boy, we whipped them. I am Saul. I am the mighty man. I am the one who runs this whole land. And then he hears it. He hears, faint at first. Faint at first. 
But it gets louder. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his... David, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saul has killed his thousands. I like that part. David has killed his ten thousands. Let's see what happens. Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands, and what? Can he have more but the kingdom? Now let me just put God's answer in there. He's going to get that too. Here it comes, boys and girls. Young man, young lady, here's the thing you better write in your heart when you understand what I'm about to say to you today and maybe you can't get it. I've been in this business 35 years. I understand it. I understand it greater than probably uh, anybody in this room. But I understand it. You better get it down. Because this next verse is the key. Here it comes. Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day forward. Listen, kid, this is a rough world. I try to grow you up, try to put steel in your backbone, try to put all kinds of titanium in your legs to get you to stand for God. But the bottom line is this. If you're going to stand for God and you're going to make up your mind that you're going to be the man God wants you to be, God will move you and, and, and you begin to grow. It's just a matter of time. In any church. Whether it's this one, that one, this one, this one, anyone you pick. This one is not as bad as, as most of them out there. But I'll tell you what, wherever you got people, you got, you got problems and you got this kind of problem. You always have people in any church that have been around for a long time or they, they, they've been around and they grow to a point and then they stop growing right there. And that's where they're going to stay. They're going to live on their reputation. They're going to live on my armor. They're going to live on my relationship. They're going to live on this and live on that. And then some of you hot dog guys come out, or some of you gals that really get plugged in. You really get going. You really get on fire. And suddenly, they eye you as a threat. They eye you as somebody that's going to take their job. There are you or somebody that's going to get farther along than they are. And just like Saul, I gave it in the ministry. I'm telling you, kid, you better learn it. My first experience with this was in 1977. I just moved to Kansas City and became a youth pastor. We had our first camp. Some of you were at that camp. Steve Brackeen was there. I think you were there. Your dad was one of my counselors. Uh, uh, some, uh, 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 some of you were there. And we had our first camp down at old Beth Haven, down outside of Springfield. We had a great revival. And I was wondering what was happening. The first couple of days, I thought, this wasn't church camp. This is the epitome of hell. Everybody's killing everybody, fighting everybody. This thing is an absolute mess. And about Wednesday night, God got a hold of the camp and broke the camp's heart. We had probably 120 kids. I guarantee you, 65 of those kids got saved. Now that's the good side. Thank you, Shelly, for shedding those tears and now you're all bubbly. I got a bad side of the story. They were all deacons and pastor's kids. Now I was dumb, stupid, and naive back then. I had not been battle tested. You say, what does that mean? I hadn't had my rear end shot off yet. So I'm happy. I mean, what a great camp. And we're driving back into camp where they were coming down and cussing and smoking and screaming and yelling. Now we're coming back to church and the old church bus. Everybody's singing, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. 
Wow, God gave us a great victory. That was Saturday morning. How does something go to hell in a handbag so bad from Saturday morning to Sunday morning? Easy when the 65 kids that just got saved ruffle the feathers of mom and dads who don't like their position as deacon being shaken by the fact that their kids were lost and they were deacons. Now, whose fault do you think that became? I'll wait for an answer. Yes. Yes. I got called in the office. He know, the pastor had already got, I don't know how many phone calls, Saturday night. Because the deacon's kids who were lost and now saved wanted to get baptized Sunday night. Now, you know how embarrassing it is for you to be a deacon in your church and your kid to be lost? And now here it is, a situation where, where that, 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 who are they going to blame? And from that point moment on, I was eyed and blacklisted by the leadership because of the fact I had it publicly. One of them said it. You have publicly embarrassed my ministry. Oh, I am so sorry. Next time I'll just let your kid die and go to hell. I learned my lesson all the way back in 77. Saul's a picture of the older Christians who stopped growing with God. And now the new kid steals the show. Kill that bug. The new kid kills the show. But the only rule is if you kill it, you got to eat it. <laughs> the new kid steals the show. The kid's got the fire. The old Christian lost the fire. Kid's got the passion. Old Christian doesn't have any more passion. He's got, he's got, he's got time and grain. But he has no passion. He has no purpose. He has no desire. That's what happened with Saul and David. That's what happens in every church in this country. That's what squashes young Christians. Oh, but, the, but, but, but here's better yet. You've got to learn the whole thing. Saul's not stupid like most of older Christians aren't stupid. They're just dumb. And Saul says, calls David in. He must have saw the Godfather because the original Corleone statement, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, was Saul and David. Because Saul calls David in. And he says, what a warrior you are. What an asset you are to this kingdom. What a, what a soldier. I want you to know, David, I'm so proud of you. You brought honor to God into this kingdom. And David, I want you to know that you're just like my son. And all the time, Saul was plotting to kill David. All the time. All the outward admonishments was only covering up an inward perverseness that Saul had been rejected by God and God was no longer using him. And now he was going to replace Saul with David. And David says, or Saul says, I'll get that kid. I'll fix that kid. We don't have time to get into this, but the study in itself is how God protected David and all of that. It's another whole study. How God, Saul was against David and wanted to kill him, and God was for David and wanted him to be king. So you know what God did? And he always does this. He took Jonathan, Saul's own son, and lined him up with David in a, in a relationship that they, were, they, they just loved each other like two brothers. And, and Jonathan protected David from his own father. 
I don't have time this morning to go into that study. That is a study in itself of how God protects you in the midst of adversity when other people, other Christians want to hurt you. Uh, you got something here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you. And of course, in time, Saul dies, and God, we see David becoming to the throne. It's a great lesson. You know what the rule is? Because sooner or later, you'll find yourself in that situation. Maybe you have already. I've watched things around here where, where somebody tries to sandbag some young Christian. I've seen it happen. This church is not immune from it. Wherever there's going to be people, there's going to be Christians. They're going to try to cut down somebody else and say to a young Christian, well, you can't trust this person or you can't trust this and that. Hey, let them make that up for their own mind. But it happens. I've had Christians, younger Christians, I told them to do something and some old Christian sandbagged them right in front of them and, and thought, I guess thought I didn't see it. Now, here's how you do with it. You're a young man and you're a young lady and you really want to serve God and your heart's right and you got the whole thing. Let me tell you how you deal with this. You do nothing. You stay focused in what God has called you to do. It never pays for you to act just like the person that's trying to hurt you because that makes you just like them. I have learned anything in 35 years of ministry, I have learned that the souls of life will always self-destruct in time. They always will. You know what? Go back there to 2 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 24. You realize that David had a chance a couple of times to kill Saul? There's one example I remember where Saul's sleeping in a cave and David hid in the cave and he's way in the back of the cave, you know, and it, it's about 7.30 and he says, well, I'm stuck because the only out way out was out and Saul and his guys were all there. And so he's back there and about midnight he hears the snoring. So he peeks around the cave and there's all of Saul's guys sound asleep. And there's Saul, Saul laying right there. Now he was running from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him. And David could have just as easily pulled out his dagger and slit his throat put his hand over his mouth, blocked off the air passage and cut his throat and let him to bleed and been 100 miles away. But he didn't do it. You know why? Because David operated under the principle that even though he was a bad king and he had been rejected by God, God hadn't officially took him out yet and David says, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. Even at that part in his life, he's following what the Word of God says, even when he could have ended the peril. But you know what David knew? David knew that Saul, with all the intentions that he had, and this is what you've got to learn. It doesn't matter wherever you go to church or wherever you're at in life, whether it's your job, whether whatever it is, or whether it's here, whatever. It doesn't matter who's against you and who wants to knock you down. As long as you and God are where you need to be, you ain't got a thing to worry about. I always tell people, you know, you're better off on a railroad track crossing with the car stuck and dead and the doors all jammed and locked and the train 50 feet away with that big light coming down on you and the roar of the engine shaking the car and you can't get out and you can't get off the tracks. You are better off in that situation in the will of God than you are at home in your bed out of the will of God. And some of you can't grasp that. And I know that. I know that. But in time, you'll understand what I'm talking about. The lesson is simply this. You know what? He weeps at the death of Saul. He had no animosity in his heart because he didn't take it personal. He weeps at the death of Saul. He feels bad that Saul dies. In fact, when the guy comes in, ah, here's how it works. Here's another little twist to it. This is another story. We don't have time to get into this. A guy comes running down the road. He comes into the king. He knows David is trying to be killed by Saul. And he comes in there bearing the good news. Saul's dead. Ah, see how he wants to play it? Here he plays this way. Saul's dead. 
David says, Saul's dead? Yes, my Lord, he's dead. Well, how did he die? Ah, great opportunity. He's David's his enemy. He's David's enemy. He tried to kill David. Mm, I see a good opportunity here. Your, your majesty, I killed him for you. David said, you killed Saul? Yes, sir. Calls two of his other boys over and says, kill this guy. Kill him right on the spot. You know what David held to the line all the way his life? He says, he was the Lord's anointed. You had no biz to kill him. You see, you know what the rule is? Saul was David's enemy, but David never became Saul's enemy. Stay pure, kid. Don't, don't stoop to their tactics. Don't get out of focus. Don't lose your focus. If you're right with God and you're God's man and you're God's woman and you work on the shepherd's heart and you let me build the form of the years in your life, God will defend you in his time. I mean, let me ask you a question. Did Cain get away with killing Abel? I think not. Did Ishmael get away with beating up on Isaac? I think not. Did Ahab get away with slapping around Elisha? I don't think so. Did Saul get over David? No, he did not. Did the scribes and the Pharisees get around Christ? No, they didn't. Did Israel ever get ahead of God? No, they did not. You see, these people are idiots. They think, they think the fact that they hate you. Well, let me tell you something. If you hate another Christian, listen to me. If you hate another Christian and that person is a true Christian, and you're a true Christian, you might as well just say, I hate God, because that Christian is one with God. You can't hate them without hating God. See where the problem comes in? And most of you, that just goes over your head. Over your head. Now the last one here. We've got time to do this one quick here. The last one here. I mean, there's scores of them. The last one here is found over here in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, there's so many. I mean, all I can do is kind of whet your appetite today, but I want you to see that David as king represents you and I always having the victory. Now, here's the story in 2, king, excuse me, 2 Samuel 5, verses 6. And I'm not going to read this for the sake of time, but you can read it on your own. I'm going to tell you the story. Now, this one, is, this one is how you and I, as a child of God, break, break a satanic stronghold in our lives. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. What is the definition of a satanic stronghold? I know it sounds like it's Satan with his arms around you. No, it can be your boyfriend or your girlfriend with their arms around you. It doesn't necessarily have to be something bad. We obviously think of a satanic uh, a stronghold as pornography, drugs, or this or that. And I'm not saying that that's not. But the bottom line is a satanic stronghold is anything that has more control over you than God does. It can be your boyfriend. It can be your girlfriend. It can be your job. <coughs> it can be your career. It can be the money you want to make in life. <coughs> it doesn't have to be something that we all know is bad. It can be pride. It can be, it can be the ministry. It can be anything out of balance in your life. So when, you're going to have to constantly face this. And here's a case that, that and this is, this, is one of the, this, is one of the, this is one of the key concepts in, in counseling and dealing with people. Because many people you're going to deal with, and we're not going to get into the great depth here, we will when we go through it in counseling, but many people will be up against a, one of the things you've got to break in their life is a satanic stronghold. And you, somebody says, how do you do that? How do you break that satanic stronghold in their life? Well, the motto is David as king who's got victory over all of God's enemies in God's life and his own life. That's how you do it. This is another story. Now, here's the storyline. The Jebusites, who by, by race are God's enemies. Therefore, they're David's enemies. The Jebusites, they're at a line of Cain. The Jebusites, 
have now taken control of Jerusalem. Let's talk about that for a moment. What is Jerusalem? Jerusalem in the Old Testament was absolutely necessary for the Jews to have control of Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem was the seat from which God's ministry reigned through Israel. For them, for the Jew, not to have Jerusalem is exactly that God not having control of your life. Where God wanted to work out of a literal temple, in a literal city, in a literal place in the Old Testament, God has made your body the temple now, and He wants to reign and work out of you. And when you come into a story like this, that the enemies of God, the Jebusites, have taken the nation of God, it's a picture of you and me being nullified in our work for God. Israel cannot do one thing for God without Jerusalem. And you can't do and I can't do one thing for God if we don't have control of our own lives. That's the picture. In this story we see a picture of a child of God breaking this satanic stronghold in his life. Obviously, when I think about this, there's, in counseling, there's probably a hundred of these that are main things that you find that you build your basis on counseling on. You don't just whip up something in your mind. There's principles and stories and concepts about everything in this book that helps you understand not only how people get into it, but biblically walking them out of it. There's probably 200 lesser ones. But it's the key to biblical counseling and dealing with people and helping people with their problems. And when you read this story, you'll find that David, David represents you and me. He also represents Christ. And this city, Jerusalem, represents the place of God. And as long as Israel is out of the city and the Jebusites have it, Israel is done. And as long as you are not in control of your own life, if there's anything, anybody, any circumstance that controls you more than God does at this moment, you ain't going nowhere. You ain't going to do anything. Because every time you start, the devil's just going to pull that chain and rip you back. Five things David does. Very quickly. Five things David does in breaking this stronghold. You know the first thing he does? Found in verse 6. David leads the battle. In other words, it's a picture of, of, of you giving yourself over to Christ and you saying, I can't do this on my own. David leads the battle. You know the difference between you as a saved man or woman and an unsaved man or woman? They have no power to get out what they're under. They have no power at all to stop the oppression in their life. Absolutely none. They may clean themselves up. They may get out of the gutter. They may find a job. They may get married. They may have a family. And then they die and go to hell at the end of their life. They have absolutely no power. You as a Christian have every power to break whatever you've got to break in your life. But it starts when you put in Christ number one in your life. It starts with you putting Christ number one in your life. You cannot change your life without changing you. You cannot change your action without changing your attitude about that action. You have to change your life, not just make an adjustment in your life. You have to solve the problem, not just continually treating your symptoms. 
Christ has to become the focus of your life, not you, not your girlfriend, not your boyfriend, not your job, not your education, not your sin. It has to be Christ. It has to start with David as a type of Christ leading this battle for you because you and I can't do it on our own. Then I want you to see the second thing in verse 9. Here we find where David does something that's quite incredible. He changes the name of that city from Jerusalem to the city of David. You know what that represents? That represents the change in your life that you now claim. Claim what is God's for yourself. It represents you putting your name on a dotted line. It represents you recognizing now who you are in Christ. A number of months ago, maybe even a year or so ago, we talked about the seven things that changed. The, day, the reason I did it, and I did it in great length, is because we have been using it and dealing with people and counseling and ministry ever since that day. The seven things that changed about you the day you got saved, the seven things you must recognize in yourself, the same thing that, that if you're going to change the name of your city and see who you are and claim that for yourself, you must see yourself as God sees you, not as you see yourself. We've talked about those seven things, but basically they come down to you've got to change your purpose. You've got to change your passion, and you have to change your perspective. Now the next one is in verse 4, and I think this is great. We've got two more to go, but this is the best one of the bunch as far as I'm concerned. Verse 4. When you read that verse, you know what it says? That verse takes you ahead. Battle's not even been fought yet. Hasn't even happened yet. And the Bible in that verse tells you that as far as God's concerned, the city was defeated and the battle is won as soon as David was made king of his life and they haven't even fought the battle yet. There's the absoluteness of the promises of the Word of God. You start to put God in your life and your battle is over as far as God's concerned. We just got to mop it up. The victory starts the moment. That's the great thing. You get in a foot race, you don't win till you get to the end. You get in some kind of competition, you don't win till you get to the end. In God's book, in God's world, when you say in your heart, God, it's yours, I'm going to whip this thing, you got the victory, you haven't even fought it yet. I think of the book of Joshua. You know what he said in Joshua? He said, you know what? Joshua chapter 1 and 2, it's your land. I've given it to you. They weren't even in the land yet. But in God's mind they were. You know where you're at in God's mind today? You're already victorious when you haven't even won the victory yet. You know why? Because in God's mind, you're a sure bet kid if you just do what the book says. You do what the Word of God says in your life and you are a sure bet. You will do everything and accomplish everything that God wants you to accomplish. God always sees the victory. We always focused on the defeat. You do what the book says and you've won. I heard somebody uh, in a Bible study a couple of months ago, uh, not our Bible study, but uh, one that I was uh, at, a guy talked about one question about what does it mean in the Bible when it says, Jesus, my hope? And they were kind of befuddled about it, you know, because it's kind of a misleading thing. And the guy was trying to work his way around it, and he says, well, he says, because it, it sounds like that Jesus, my hope, like if I get saved, that, that I hope Jesus says, saves me, see? And I told him, I said, you know what, that's not what it's saying, kid. 
It's saying, it's not saying that you get saved and you hope you're saved. It's saying Jesus is the only hope you got. There is no other hope. But it's all how you read things, you see. It's all how you get your perspective on it. I hear silly excuses about people not wanting to get their lives straightened out. Well, it's too far to drive. Uh, somebody said one time, well, you know what? I, don't, I, I like to go talk to Bob, but you know what? I don't, I don't, it's, it's too far to go. And, you know, I really don't know him, and I'm really not comfortable with talking with him. You know how stupid that sounds? Let me ask you a question. If you went to the and the doctor found it quick enough. Now, here's the deal. You got cancer, but we got it in the early stages. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to set you up with a, with, a, with a doctor over here that specializes in your kind of cancer. And he's going to set you up with, I talked to him on the phone, he's going to set you up with, we're going to, he's going to set you up with 28 radiation treatments. And he tells me that because we caught it so quick, and though it can move into a deadly form of cancer, we caught it so quick, he tells me that you have a 99 yet percent chance of recovery, almost 100% if you go through these things. Now, let me ask you a question. No, let me ask you a question. Listen to me. Let me ask you a question. Would you walk out of there and say, Wow, that was a close call. I'm only, I'm only, I'm only 29. Dying of cancer, I got my whole life again. Boy, I'll tell you what. I, boy, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I'm going to be okay. I'm so thankful. I, uh, Mom, Mom, I just got out of the doctor, and the doctor says I'm going to be okay. Dad, 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 uh, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Uh, honey, 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 I'm going to be okay. Uh, uh, kids, I'm going to be okay. Uh, and then you walk out and you say, wow, I feel better. And the guy says, well, when are you, when are you going to go? Well, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to go take the radium treatments. I don't really know this doctor. Can you see yourself doing that? When your life is on the line and you're going to die and you've got to get radiate treatments, if it's 35 miles to are you going to say, well, that's just too far to drive. I think I'll just, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of similarity between radiation and the sun. I think I'll just stand out in the sun. You're laughing at that, but that's exactly how a lot of God's people deal with their problems. Let me tell me, some of you got some problems. You're going to die spiritually. You're going to lose your marriage. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose this. You're going to lose that. And the bottom line is, you know what? The doctor has said, you can fix this. There's a way to fix it because the Bible has everything. But all the silly excuses that we have, then we wonder why we never get the victory. Tell you what. Tell you what. God's people are crazy. Look at the next one, verse 8. Oh, I love this one. David defeats this city stronghold. Look how he does it. He goes up through a gutter. Now, let me tell you about what this is. The city had walls around it, but the walls around it had big holes in them where the water ran out. Kind of like a sewer system. And so David says, instead of us spending a lot of guys and knocking down this wall and putting siege to it for three or four years, let's just be smarter than they are. See those big holes in the wall? Let's wait till midnight and just sneak up in those gutters. Now, the only interesting thing about that is that this city is a picture of your spiritual breakdown and, and stronghold in your life. And we're looking at David and his life of trying to get the victory on it. And the bottom line is this. When the victory finally came and the battle came, I want you to understand that David brought the victory about by going in through a water system. And a water is a type of the Word of God in the Bible. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, by washing of the water by the Word, 
Titus 3, 5, a washing of regeneration and renewing the Holy Spirit of God. The Word of God in your life. Breaking down, casting down imaginations and bringing into captivity every thought that the obedient Christ. Washing out your mind. Now, let me give you a practical understanding so you all grasp it. When I was a kid growing up, my mother used to give me all kinds of what for because I'd get grass stains in my pants, in the knees. And now you're playing ball, you're running around, you're wrestling, you come in the house and you get grass stained down in there. Now, you know, normal stains are okay. You spill a Coke, you spill ketchup, that's all right. But there are certain stains that you're really hard to get out. And the reason why my mother got upset with me because I got grass stains in my jeans is because she had to wash it four or five times to get the stains out. My point is simply this. There are some stains in your mind that make up the satanic stronghold that you have to wash your mind more than just one time to get them out. People don't like coming to church sometimes. You know what church is? Go home this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. God gave you the greatest example of what church is in your house and getting dirt out of your clothes and getting dirt out of your life that you ever had. Go home, ladies and gentlemen, and eat. Go, don't, don't go out to eat. Go get something and take it home and open up your cabinets and sit there and eat and discuss while you look at your washing machine. Your washing machine is a picture of Old Path Baptist Church. Because every Monday... Or whenever you do laundry. Or whenever your husband does it. Here's how it works. Now bear with me. You pick up all them dirty clothes. Some of those clothes, ladies, you have to handle more delicately than others. Do you not? Some of those clothes you have to wash more than one time because of where your husband has been and what he's done. Or your children. But no matter how you do it or how many times. I had a pair of shorts the other day that, that, that keep fading on me. And I kept spilled coffee on them. We were out. You know, Bermuda shorts, you know. And, and uh, my wife had to wash them six times. She kept holding them up to the light. I don't think I got them out. I don't think I got them out. Pretty soon I thought to myself, I'm just going to pour, dump them in coffee and just change the color of them. Cause it, it, and, but but you, know what happened? you know what happened? This is, what it, this is what you do to get your clothes clean. This is what you do. Your, the, your washing machine is your church. Okay? Now here's how it works. You take your dirty clothes and you put them in the, in the washer. You're here today. You're in this church. And then the Holy Spirit of God is the special agent detergent that you put on. In other words, some of you need some, of you need some help with the dirt. So the Holy Spirit of God is working on you while I'm preaching. And, and the, 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 the Clorox or whatever you put, that you put in there, your downy or your bounty or your wow-wowny or whatever it is, you put that in there and then you close the lid. Then what do you do? Then you push the button. And what happens, ladies, when you push the button? What? What happens? Water starts to come in. Ah, oh, water starts to come in. And so this, this, Washing machine that is a picture of this church, your clothes, which is a picture of your life, the, the, the downy, bounty, wowny, wowny, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God, is all in there. And now you've turned on and the water comes up. Now, let me ask you a question. When that washing machine fills up and it gets to the point, do you just drain the water and go over and pick out clean clothes? No. No, 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 no. No, it doesn't work that way. It would be nice if it did. But every washing machine has what every church needs. You know what it is? It's an agitator. Hello? 
Do you ever have your washing machine out of balance? I did one time and I heard, I'm downstairs and I heard this. Boom, 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 And I walk up there and the washing machine is, it's out of balance. You know why? Because inside there is an agitator. And that agitator just beats those clothes senseless. And it just swirls them around and kicks them and slaps them and boots them. And it moves them back and forth. And it makes the water get into your pockets where it normally wouldn't get. It gets up inside your cuffs. It gets up into your armpits where those real stains are at. It, it gets everywhere. And that agitator just keeps beating the code back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then when it hits the cycle, then it drains down. And then it comes up again with clean water. And then it agitates it some more. Then it drains out. And then the end result, it spins you to death. You come in here, we all got dirt in our jeans. You sit down, Holy Spirit does His work. I push the button, the water comes in. And then in the middle of the sermon, we get agitated. We kick you six ways from Sunday. We make you think about things you don't want to think about. We force you to think about things you've hidden in the back of your mind. We force, oh, you don't like it, but your genes don't like getting beaten scentless in there either. Ask them next time. Now, I mean, they open it up sometime. It's vroom, 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 vroom. But you know what you see in the top when it's being agitated? All the dirt comes up to the top. Then it drains out, then you wash them up. That's the process that God does in your life. You know what's wrong with churches? We got machines. We got Holy Spirit, we got water, we're lacking agitators. Nobody wants to tell you what you don't want to hear. You don't ever fix anything in your life by just hearing what you want to hear. You fix your life and I fix my life by hearing what I don't want to hear. He defeats this city through a water system. And if you ever get your life where it needs to be, and you ever break a satanic stronghold or something that's got control over you, you're only going to do it through a system of water that cleanses you and washes you and puts you and gets the stains out of your mind just like your mama gets the stains out of your genes. Then the last thing, verses 9 and 10. David made the city, he claims it for God, and he makes the city his home, his capital, from which he lives and reigns. We say it a lot of different ways. We say that if Jesus isn't Lord of all, then he's Lord not at all. We say Christ being number one in your life. He talks about Christ sitting on the throne of your life. Let me tell you something. It's simply this. You live your life by the principles of the Word of God. That's all there is to it. I, I, my daughter was telling me about a Bible study she was at couple of weeks ago and the question came up could Jesus Christ sin if he wanted to one of those questions like can rock God make a rock bigger than he could pick up you know and uh, she called me on the way home and she said dad she said this was the this was the question tonight she said she said she said, I kind of got it figured out but I want to see what you said is even right could, could have Christ sin if he wanted to my answer was who cares he didn't but that's you know but the bottom line is this whether he could or he couldn't is immaterial. Now, I know he was tempted on all points like we are, yet without sin. But the bottom line is this. The reason why Jesus was a man, and he probably could have sinned because to be tempted on all points, he probably he had to have the possibility of sinning because I do. But the great, they missed the whole point. The, listening to the discussion was like a bunch of four-year-olds trying to take a bomb with an atom bomb. They missed the whole point. 
whether he could have sinned or whether he didn't, could have not have sinned is immaterial. The bottom line is he didn't sin, and they missed the point, why didn't he? Because the two favorite expressions that he uses, one with the devil and one with the scribes of Pharisees. With the devil, when the devil tried to come and get him his sin, he simply looked him in the eyeball and says, it is written. And when the scribes and the Pharisees came to him, his favorite expression was, have you not read? In other words, whether he could or he couldn't is immaterial. He didn't, and the reason he didn't is because he did what we don't do. He made the book the capital of his life. And he lived every day of his life by those principles of the Word of God. David's life is king. Wow, what a great study. I wish that I had the time this morning to walk you through it all. But you got a little capsule view of it. When we study David as king, we're studying a man who by his life, reigning when he reigns, defeating the enemies of God that are the last ones in the land of Palestine, we're looking at your life and my life and what it should be. Or we get knocked down. Yes, we do. But we never should get knocked out. We always ought to have the victory in Christ Jesus. We ought to live above the circumstances. And the reason we can is because of the fact that we, he is on the throne of your life and my life as king. And everything we're doing, we're doing through the word of God. Well, next week we'll come up and we'll look at David as God's man. But let's have a word of prayer. And then we'll be dismissed this morning. Don't forget the golf things up here if you want to get in the league. And, and thank you for being here today. And I hope it's been a blessing to you. And I'll keep you posted on everything. And I'll see you, Lord willing.